DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationista. Sup, you're here with Janice Pellianis and... Dan Raymer. What's up, Dan? Sup, Janice. Hey. We're like a trio today. Yeah. I with see a silent we third. <laughs> we have here our fearless leader, Janice I was going to say that. Oh. What were you going to okay. say? Do you fearless think leader. See, look at that. The more we podcast, we're like this. We're, we, uh, we're totally each other. one brain. Check completely that vibing. That's not it. good. That's not good, though. Clearly, two <laughs> different bodies, but one brain. Very, yeah, yeah. I think the uh, differences in the bodies are quite marked. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny Rudolph, our executive director here at the Center for Medical Simulation, organizational behavior psychologist background, um, has. I think everybody in the field pretty much knows you, Jenny Rudolph, but I feel like uh, for the listeners that don't, we should probably add a little bit more. Sup? Sup? Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm totally thrilled to be here with you guys. I've been admiring your podcast from near and far for the last couple of years, so I'm really happy to be a guest. So Jenny, so you've had the job of executive director for a couple of years now. So I was thinking, you know, about talking to you and and putting some pressure on you. So what's the what's the hardest thing about your job excluding the Including managing personnel. both of you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Janice and me. Yeah. The difficult the employee situation. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the hardest thing is also the most fun thing, and that is not getting lost in the weeds and toggling among thinking about what's happening in education and learning. Uh, globally, what's happening with technology related to education, and linking that to what we care about most, what's our mission, and then down into the weeds of like, how do we do teaching and learning using simulation, using podcasting, using online peer-guided feedback, all the different things we're doing. So I think it's very hard for me to force myself to move among those levels. The thing that people, many people may not know about CMS is that it's a freestanding entity kind of tucked in within the Harvard system uh, and that it, it doesn't get any money from the Harvard system directly. It has to pay its own way by offering courses and collecting tuition and doing projects and getting grants and things like that. I would, the part that would scare me uh, uh, in your job is is <laughs> keeping the ship afloat. You know, yeah, how no. do you, I, I just don't like to ask people for money and I just don't deal with money, as you well know, you won't let me do anything <laughs> that has to do with money. So how do you, how do you, how do you, I mean, you don't strike me as the money kind of person that you think about that kind of stuff all the time. How do you, how do you navigate that? 
Well, uh, no margin, no mission is what I just uh, chant to myself from time to time. And we are a you know independent nonprofit, as you said, and so we have to figure out how to make more money than we spend. Our goal is not profit. Our goal is to create great programs for people and make enough money so that we can keep doing that. So I will say that I am over the rank terror phase of my new job that I took over two years ago. But when I stepped into Jeff Cooper's very, very big shoes, I was scared, Dan. And I think it is a complex thing to manage how do you be a generous and helpful and giving academic, which we are all uh, in this field because of, and uh, manage a nonprofit that has to charge tuition and so on and so forth for our for our programs. And I think you know any college president has the same uh, dichotomy and challenges. I'm on a super much smaller scale than that as a chief executive here, but toggling again, it's toggling between our values of being helpful and our need to make a margin and. What I've found surprisingly is that those go together. So you can both be really helpful and make a margin, and in fact, there's synergies. So you brought up something that uh, that I've been sort of dying to ask you at this point. So you mentioned Jeff Cooper, and for our listeners who don't know, Jeff Cooper is uh, is an icon. He was through his career, you know, a voice for patient safety when. It wasn't such a popular topic. His work in the early 80s around errors in anesthesiology and, um, you know, he he chose some very controversial topics. And because Jeff was such a principled man, he garnered huge amount of respect throughout not, not only the institution here that he worked in, but worldwide and the people, the people with power in our organization respected him in a way that I've not seen them respect really anyone. And so you, you said, you, you mentioned his big shoes to fill. And when you took the job, I was afraid for you because I thought that's impossible. You know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's just a, a giant. And for you to come in and be looked at differently would just be so difficult. So I, I'm just really interested. And I think you've done a wonderful job, by the way. I think you've, you've, uh, you've managed to create your own space and the respect for you in, in other ways. But, but tell me about that journey. That, that You must have sensed the same thing. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Jeff Cooper's uh, tenure as the director of biomedical engineering for Partners Healthcare, overseeing biomedical engineering for Brigham and Women's Hospitals and and the Mass General Hospital, as well as being the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation for many, many years, did give him a variety of platforms and ways to build trust and respect with other people. And um, so, A big part of my journey was really trying to connect with and carry on Jeff's commitment and practice of being an honest broker who walks his talk. So I'd say 
that was my real North Star uh, in stepping into that role. You know, I'd like to affirm as a uh, employee what that transition was like, and and I too worried about who are we going to hire to replace Jeff? Because at the time, you were not interested, I think, in in, in the first go, the first search. And um, when we had the search company interviewing all of us as to what we were looking for, for a replacement for Jeff, the number one thing that was important to me, which just made me so happy when you did step up to the plate, Jenny, was ethical foundation that Jeff has just really shines through. And when you're at the top like that and you're, you have so much responsibility and so many things to juggle, it's really important that you naturally have the ability to, or you ha- your natural personality gives people the ability to hold the basic assumption for you very naturally. So for example, you know, many people at, at other simulation centers or other organizations, when they're not invited to a meeting, they get offended, like, oh, their boss is trying to do something malintent, something like that. But with you and with Jeff, it was always like, oh, they just kind of forgot me off the list. Uh, it's just so easy to give both of you the basic assumption. And and so I think that I just want to affirm what you're saying there. I think that that really does work to, to the advantage of any leader that's in a, a very high position. Well, I, I really appreciate your generosity in uh, uh, assuming the best of me. And I, I'm sure that does help me do a better job. And to continue your question, Dan, and what you're raising, Janice, I felt that two things were really important in terms of continuing the ethical and basically being open and honest approach that Jeff took. So one was I made a condition of my employment that uh, Jeff would mentor me. So we have a weekly half hour mentoring meeting where I talk about the challenges I'm facing and I get his honest feedback. Another thing I did was I assured that we would have a chief curiosity officer And that is you, Dan Raymer. And uh, when we talked about the role, one of the things I thought was really important was the traditional role in a princely or old-fashioned kingdom or queendom is to have a court jester. And the role (laughs) of the jester... I love it. I love it. Yes. Janice, Janice, what is so funny about that? (laughs) I am buying you a hat. I'm buying you a hat. So the the (laughs) role of the court jester is to speak truth to power and to make fun of sacred cows and to bring up the difficult things. And so I wanted to make sure that I didn't take myself too seriously, which is... I'm a sacred cow. (laughs) Same move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, I felt that I, I needed to build in some structures to keep me honest about being honest. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was I really felt like the values that I espoused in my writing uh, and my teaching, such as doing things, exercising your good judgment of both uh, holding people to high standards and holding them in high regard and doing the same for myself, holding myself to high standards and cutting myself some slack was what I wanted to bring to bear, you know, when we were all hanging out together trying to do stuff that just the same way as we do it in debriefings, we should do it in our meetings or whatever and give each other spicy feedback, help each other be better, etc. You know what's so funny about the court jester thing, Janice, <laughs> is, that, is that Jenny 
we were talking about giving presentations or something like that, and Jenny once said to me, Dan, you know, I, I think one problem with the talks I give is I'm just not funny like you are. <laughs> Can you teach me to be funny? <laughs> I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> Clearly, you have not been successful in that, Dan, for some reason. <laughs> no, you, you've, you've definitely come into your own in terms of humor. I want to just go continue on what you just said, Jenny, because I one thing that I think the world uh, or the field, well, some people probably know, but a lot of people don't know, is your athletic background. And that's, you know, being a professional crew rower. And I think that if there's anything I've really learned from you, it's how you bring the deliberate practice and the things you've learned from being an athlete into what we do here as an organization. And I think you're speaking to that right now. Oh, well, thanks. Well, I do think, um, uh, you know, having road crew on the U.S. team and also doing a lot of rock climbing, uh, you get um, a ton of implicit feedback uh, like when you win or you don't row well or when you fall off the wall, um, you know you didn't do something that well. And so I do try to bring ways to give ourselves feedback in the daily practice, which is in a way a lot harder because we humans are so polite all the time. So we often suppress our critical insights about each other in the service of making nice and smoothing over. And so I think uh, one of the things that... I've learned recently, for example, that I'm loving and, um, you know, working with you guys, I get a lot of this, is the idea of implicit feedback, which I learned from Walter Epic recently, who completed his PhD on learning through talk. And he looked at uh, telephone conversations between attending physicians and their residents primarily. And one of his most interesting findings to me is that people are constantly getting implicit feedback. And the form that it took, if I understand his study correctly, in those conversations is when the attendings asked clarifying questions of the residents, that meant the resident wasn't being clear. So I just want to give an example. We just had our leadership team meeting last week, and um, we're getting ready for a strategy planning meeting in December that you both are going to be at. And uh, so I was working with uh, the team, figuring out what we were going to do and how each uh, program leader was going to manage their time. And uh, Roxanne Gardner very helpfully said, so Jenny, you know, I, I get what you're asking us to do, but like, I don't get why. So I immediately started laughing, not because I thought it, uh, Roxanne was wrong, but because I thought she was completely right. That was amazing, explicit feedback, uh, implicit. implicit feedback. I was like, <laughs> hmm, uh, yes, that is a really good question, Roxanne. <laughs> why are we doing this? So then we had a little conversation about that. And so... I feel like in sports, the feedback is sometimes harsh and obvious, but in social interactions, it's often subtle and difficult to perceive. And I feel like part of the art of what we are all trying to do together is listen for that feedback and adjust. Jenny, um, one thing about your job that sort of, uh, sort of interests me, or maybe it interests other people more than me, so I'll ask the question anyways. You know, there's so much talk in our society about women in leadership. You know, m my experience in healthcare is that 
uh, you know, healthcare has changed dramatically over the years. There are many more women in healthcare. And as it turns out, I've worked for women as much as I've worked for men, or even more so if I add up the years. I wonder about your experience being a woman in a leadership position, taking over from a man in the same leadership position. Have you have you detected things that that are related to your gender that have you found you found difficult or helpful? You know, I feel like I have been in a protective cocoon my entire life with respect to gender bias, Dan. So <laughs> I'm maybe not the best person to ask, but I grew up in a family with a professor mom and a professor dad who had a lot of mutual respect for each other and did research together and wrote books together. And I think I was 10 years old before I realized that not all families' parents went to work together and both <laughs> did stuff. So that was a little bit of a, a, a... My roots are that, of course, I can do anything that any man can do. And then secondly, um, you know, in my work here at the Center for Medical Simulation, my initial three mentors were all men, you, Robert Simon, and Jeff Cooper. And I never felt that you treated me differently or less than because of my gender. I do think a big transition for me, which, you know, may have in some ways been more challenging because of gender, but I'm not sure, is flipping the role where now I am the executive director and my three beloved mentors are, well, Jeff's moved on to do other things, but you and Robert are technically my direct reports now. And that was a big shift for me to be in a different role with you, but I don't feel like I was influenced by the gender issue. Another factor may be that I'm gay, and so my interrelationships with men are perhaps different than they would be if I were straight. So again, I feel like I'm perhaps not the best person to discuss the gender issue. I haven't struggled you're, with you're it. You're gay? <laughs> yes, this is a, a breaking news here on this podcast. I'm coming out. Yep. We often podcast from Janice's, Janice podcast from her closet. I, I, I really appreciate that you guys have not forced me back into a closet for this podcast. <laughs> but I do. I do podcast from, from the closet at home because of the acoustics yeah, are much well, better in your closet. Well, the closet can be a safe place to be. <laughs> I would like to talk about flipping reporting because I think there are many people, uh, listeners, yeah. that are going to be promoted yeah. um, that will have to, where their colleagues, their peers, or their previous seniors are now reporting directly to them. What tips do you have to our listeners, for our listeners? I, I have a really clear way that I work with this that I think, I hope would be helpful for others that I actually learned in debriefing. So I learned from a number of my clinical colleagues that when they have VIPs in the hospital, a common error is to treat the VIP differently and the result is the VIP actually ends up getting worse care a lot of the time. And they've learned the hard way that even if you have a VIP in the hospital, you should follow all the same clinical procedures, all the same things that you normally would follow if they were a quote-unquote regular patient. 
So the first time that I had to lead a course in our anesthesia crisis resource management program for faculty as the lead faculty with an anesthesia colleague for our anesthesia chiefs from throughout the Harvard system, I was quaking in my boots and I went to talk to my mentor, Dan Raymer, and he said, do everything you would normally do where possible, use their expertise and bring it in on the debriefing. So I just told myself, I'm going to do everything I normally do. I'm going to assume the best of them. I'm going to give them spicy feedback when I notice things that aren't right, but with respect and curiosity. And uh, I admit my, my, my knees were shaking, um, but it worked out. And that's really what I try to do with Dan and Robert um, when uh, you know, we shifted roles, is I, I, I have the greatest of respect for them, but it's my duty and responsibility to have good feedback conversations with them and I feel that if I treat them with respect and fairness, they'll do the same with me and we'll be able to talk about the spicy things we need to. I'm worried that sounds a little sanctimonious. So I don't think so at all. Oh, okay. And, and we've, we've always had, a, uh, had a, a great working relationship in all of our different, different roles. I, I wonder, though, um, I think it's worked out perfectly. We never had an explicit conversation about it that I recall. Did we ever sit down and say, uh, Jenny, uh, you know, I know your role's changed here. I'm now working for you instead of you working for me. Or, uh, you know, you were a graduate student and I was on your committee. And, you know, there, you know, there was several role reversals. Did, did we ever, do you recall if we ever had an explicit conversation about it? And so I, I'm bringing this up because I don't know if, it would have changed anything or been helpful or been difficult? What, what do you think of that? So I definitely remember having an explicit conversation with Robert Simon about it. And I know that Jeff Cooper and I had an explicit conversation about my diffidence or my concern that I needed room to run and make my own mistakes and so on and so forth, yet also talk with him. So we talked about how would we manage that. But Dan, I don't necessarily think that you and I did. I, I What I do recall is several kind of joking moments, like you gave a presentation once and I was sitting in the audience and you said something funny like, yeah, you know, I was on Jenny Rudolph's doctoral dissertation committee and now she's my boss. And, you know, a couple funny things like that over time and to me, I, I think, you know, you're in my style. I think together has been to be a little more implicit with each other. So I don't think we did. So do you think for, you know, for, uh, you know, Janice brought up that there are lots of people who find themselves in that position where they have role reversals. Do, do you think it's important to have that conversation in general? And um, are there times when it's not appropriate? I, I do think it's valuable. And I, if I contrast the fact that you and I didn't have it and the fact that Robert Simon and I did, I think the big difference there is you and I have had a much more loosely coupled relationship. Like we, you know, we are sort of two little planets circulating around each other at CMS. You know, you since my doctoral dissertation, have not like directly supervised me, whereas Robert Simon was my boss for many years. So, and, and is a very hands-on manager in a very helpful way, at least for me. So I felt 
it was super important for Robert and I to talk about what that would feel like for both of us, how we would do it. Um, and I actually got pretty personal about it with him in the sense that I know about myself that if I feel boxed in or threatened in any way, I can get quite reactive and people who think I'm always placid and hold the basic assumption and I'm so nice, I can be very much not like that when I feel threatened. And so I thought there was a good chance that uh, being anxious about wanting to do a good job as the executive director and, and getting some spicy feedback from my former mentor, I could easily imagine myself kind of going, ram, to Robert. So we talked about how would we deal with those kinds of events and so on. Jenny, well, um, it's really been great uh, talking to you and learning about your transition to your new job. So do Janice and I um, still have our jobs? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, we did get to talk about one really fun thing, which is uh, different relationships with different people. So I'll just bring this in, which is like Janice and I have been, you know, working together on the uh, grant from the um, Macy uh, Foundation to uh, develop the kind of interprofessional community of practice online. And Janice and I can have quite a sparky, combative uh, style sometimes in our conversations. Like I remember a number of times when we're like on Skype or on the phone, you know, practically yelling at each other about <laughs> how are we going to do something. And then we like love each other the next day. So I, I love that ability of, you know, I love that you are spicy and stand up to me and give me strong feedback. And, uh, and, you know, I feel like that, you know, really helps our projects. Well, I think that's a, a product of our culture that, that I'm so thankful you're able to maintain. I mean, it was a culture that it sounds like Jeff probably started, grew here at CMS that you're able to maintain. And that, you know, I've never worked in an organization and I, I feel like the communication, the teamwork, because we deliberately practice it here, it is a very healthy organization um, comparatively to other places where I've worked. And so, for example... Most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> and I would say, like, for example, I think a really strong example is when I first started here... Oh, my gosh, is it like 10 years ago now? I don't even know. Oh, my God. And <laughs> when you were 12. When I... <laughs> when I, uh, I, uh, I think it was Dan and Robert had a conversation. It was a sensitive conversation. And in any other organization, I, the third party, would leave the room... Um, and it would be weird to stay in the room, but here at CMS, it would be it would have been weird for me to leave the room because it was important for me to understand how we all work together and the issues at hand, and just we were we're just so transparent with all of that that um, that I think that you know our spicy conversations and being honest is is a product of of what you and Jeff create. So well, and you guys also stay so. I have one question for Jenny before we end it, though. So, Jenny, when you first took over, one of my reactions uh, was that, to me, Jenny, you are honestly the best teacher I think I've ever had. Oh. And I, I expressed this concern to you in the beginning, and I'm wondering how you're um, dealing with it, which is I felt like the world was now losing one of the best educators because all of your time was now going to go into management and, you know, leading CMS and leading the field and that sort of thing. So I, even though you, you've impressively still kept time teaching, I know it's a passion of yours. How do you deal with that? Yeah, thank you, Janice. Well, thank you for the compliment, first of all, that 
makes my year. I think two things. One is, again, sort of taking a, a page uh, from my clinical colleagues who have administrative jobs, is many of them continue to practice a day or two a week, and I think that's really important. So uh, again, when I when I agreed to take on the executive director job, we I negotiated that I would continue to do teaching 40% time, and I think we've kept up with that roughly. So I I'm in our MGHOR teams course at Mass General Hospital, and I get to be part of our learner experiences in our faculty development courses, the Institute for Medical Simulation. So I get my fix in terms of teaching, but I think as you and I and Jeff Cooper have been trying to do together, uh, my other big fix on that is seeing everyday conversations as an opportunity for teaching and learning. I feel like, you know, you've really pushed us to move the deliberately developmental agenda, uh, you know, the term brought about by by Robert Keegan from Harvard uh, Ed School, into our work together, you're in my work together, and I'm trying to do more and more of it in our leadership team. I basically moved the formal event-based teaching into more and more workplace-based teaching and learning. I, I guess I don't really necessarily think of it as teaching. I think of it as co-learning together. How do we how do we teach it and help each other get better at what we do and, and getting better at getting better, as um, my beloved colleague Nacho Del Moral calls it. Well, thank you guys. I, I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed um, listening to DJ Simulationista. Sup? And I'm thrilled to be part of the uh, uh, podcast today. Well, thanks, Jenny, for Thank everything you, for, you do. For putting up with us. <laughs> and, uh, for uh, keeping we, us employed. <laughs> right. And we appreciate you being here with us. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye. DJ Simulationistas, sup? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.